so Father, we come and we praise you for the living hope that we have in your son, Jesus Christ. God, we praise you that we do not gather today to commemorate a fallen saint, but to celebrate a risen savior, to proclaim the one who has overcome sin, who has overcome death, who has overcome the grave, who has overcome hell itself, who stands victorious through his perfect life, death, and resurrection. And Father, we thank you that that victory is freely shared with us through faith in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, as we come to your word this morning, as we see a familiar story, help us to hear it in a fresh new way. Father, help us to see the resurrection not as some distant past reality, not as some metaphor, not as some figure of speech, not as some allegory, but as a real event that really happened and has real implications for our lives. That we as your people would be empowered to declare with boldness in the same power that raised Jesus from the grave. So Holy Spirit, we yield to you. We invite you to have your way in this place. We thank you for the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, whom we worship today. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And uh, if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 24. We'll be looking together at verses 1 through 12 this morning. If you don't own a Bible, just know that as you leave today, we have black hardback Bibles available in the table in the back corner of this room. I encourage you to pick up one of those as you uh, go when we wrap up our time together this morning. This past fall marked 20 years since the events of September 11, 2001, and that morning that marked the 20th anniversary, we were home with our boys and watching the coverage of one of the memorial services, and they were eight, six, and four at the time. So as you can imagine, they had all sorts of questions about the events of that day. And so we did the best that we could to describe to them uh, where we were and how old we were and what we were doing just to help them get a little bit of a grasp about exactly what had unfolded 20 years before. And this is hard to believe, but we now have a, a generation of adults who have grown up in a completely post 9-11 world. Like we have a generation of adults who are born after the events of September 11, 2001. And, and when you were, were born after a major event, you can easily take for granted just how much one single individual event has, has shaped your life even today. And so what we try to do with our boys that day is, is to give them some context for what life was like before the events of 9-11 so that they could have some level of understanding about just how much that day impacted their lives today. So, you know, when I was a kid, I remember my dad traveled a lot for his job and especially when he traveled internationally, um, our family would usually go to the airport together to pick him up. Um, so we'd drive to the Charlotte airport and it's hard to think about this today, but like I remember a day as a kid where, man, we could show up at the airport 45 minutes to an hour before my dad's flight arrived. And then we could, on most occasions, breeze pretty quickly through security, just walk through a metal detector without a ticket. Uh, we could eat dinner in the airport. And I remember as a kid, not just going to the gate to meet my dad when he got off the plane. I remember gate agents walking me down the jetway into the cockpit to meet the pilots when his plane arrived. And again, you know, it's, that seems so distant from us today because, you know, kids, God bless them today. Like if a five-year-old wandered through TSA without a ticket, they'd tase him and give him 25 to life. <laughs> like this is a, a very, very different world. And, and so as we're explaining this to our boys, this blew their minds. 
because they're old enough now. They've flown a few times. They know how the whole song and dance goes. We got to get there a couple of hours early. And then it's, you know, those of us with, with kids who have to walk through airport security, we know how chaotic this can be. And so this helped them understand a little bit more about how much that event changed their lives today, even though that event happened before they were born. We have a whole generation that is post 9-11. And in the same way, we have a generation that's post 9-11. Every one of us in this room today, we have been born and we have lived our entire lives post-resurrection. And because we have been born in the aftermath of the resurrection, oftentimes we miss how much that single event shaped and continues to shape our lives today. It's A.W. Tozer who said, the resurrection morning was only the beginning of a great, grand, and vast outreach that has never ended and will not end until our Lord Jesus Christ comes back again. If New York City was ground zero for September 11th, the empty tomb is ground zero for Christianity. We live in the aftermath of the resurrection. We have only ever known a post-resurrection world. And I want us to see together this morning that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was not the end of anything. It was the beginning of everything. And until we begin to see that this is only where the true beginning lies, that it's only in the resurrection of Jesus that we truly begin to understand our world and our place in this world, until we come to grips with this reality, we've not yet begun to truly live. So what does the resurrection mean for us today? How does the resurrection shape our lives today? What is different for all of us today because Jesus walked out of a tomb 2,000 years ago? That's the question that we're gonna to answer together from Luke chapter 24. So Matt already read verses one through six for us earlier. The women show up at the tomb with spices to properly prepare the body of Jesus because they didn't have time to do this when his body was taken down from the cross. And so they arrive at the tomb, they find it empty. They see the angels announcing, he is not here, but he is risen. And it's this announcement, this is the ground zero moment that begins to change everything. So what does the resurrection mean for us today. First, we see the resurrection means that there is no barrier that Christ cannot remove. The resurrection means there is no barrier that Christ cannot remove. When they're greeted by the angel, the angel has a question and then he has an announcement. The question is, why do you seek the living among the dead? Now, you could say that the words of the angel were a rhetorical rebuke. It was rhetorical in the sense that they weren't looking for an answer. They didn't need an answer. They knew the answer to the question that they were asking. It was rebuke because by asking them, why do you seek the living among the dead? They were reminding them of the words of Jesus who had not only predicted that he was going to die by crucifixion, but that he was one day going to resurrect again. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Now, this question continues to have implications for us today. Everything that's in this world that is broken, everything that's in this world that's chaotic, everything that's in this world that leads to death is all due to sin. You know, Matthew's gospel tells us that the stone at the entrance of the tomb was very, very heavy. We also told that it was given a Roman seal and to break the seal carried the death penalty. And we know that there were guards who went to the tomb, but something much stronger than a stone was being rolled away that day. And it was the power of sin. Jesus was not just moving a stone. Jesus was moving the power of sin and he was moving the power of death itself. And it's this announcement at the tomb. This is what sets Jesus and this is what sets Christianity apart from every other religious system. You know, if you were to think of Jesus as just one religious option among a pantheon of religious options, we need to see today that is not how he has presented himself. 
This announcement that he is not here, he is risen, this is what sets him apart. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is the only message that of, of any religious system that is inherently based on news. The angel does not come to them with instructions. He doesn't come to them with demands. He comes with an announcement. Christianity is not a prescriptive religion. It doesn't tell you this is all that you need to be doing, and hopefully if you do enough, you will one day enter eternal life. Christianity is descriptive. It tells us this is what Jesus has done for you so that you can be saved. This question and this announcement, this is what sets Jesus apart from all the others. And, and listen, Jesus is not the only religious leader who, who would, want, would make a claim to have come back from the dead, but this announcement, this is what sets him apart. He is not here, but he is risen. Every other religious system, it's prescriptive. Here's what you have to do. And, and these are the demands that we hear over and over from every religious system. Here are the works you need to regularly complete. Here's the pilgrimage you need to make. Here are the indulgences you need to pay. Here are the alms that you need to give. Here are the acts that you must perform. And hopefully you get to the end of your life and the good has outweighed the bad. But the gospel of Jesus Christ flips this whole paradigm on its head because it tells us there's absolutely nothing we can do to cure sin on our own. There's no amount of good works that we can do. There's no amount of money that we can give. There's no amount of attending church on Easter. Nothing that we can do is enough to satisfy the debt that we owed because of sin. And like the women who had prepared spices to, to go to the tomb of Jesus to prepare his body so they could have some form of closure, the very best this world can do is help you cope with sin and the effects of sin because it can do nothing to cure sin. This is made possible for us only by Jesus. The message of every other religious system is due. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is done. In Buddha's last words, among his final words, he said, strive without ceasing. That's what religion offers you. That's what every other religious system offers you. Work without ceasing, labor without ceasing. Life under the constant pressure of wondering, am I good enough? Have I ever done enough? Jesus' final words were not strive without ceasing. Jesus' final words were, it is finished. The debt has been paid. Your, your, your record of sin has been canceled. There's nothing that we can do to do this on our own. So Christ has come and done it for us. And because Jesus cried at the cross, it is finished. The angel is able to announce he is not here, he is risen. It is because Jesus was the only qualified person to pay the price for our sins that this announcement could be made. And this is what sets Jesus apart. And again, as the women come to the, to the tomb, they're in utter disbelief because nothing felt more impossible to them than a man walking out of his own grave. Jesus had called other people out of their graves, and, but maybe there was something in their mind that's, that, you know, maybe that was just, you know, a special power. Maybe he was using magic. It was, it was one thing to believe in somebody who called someone else out of a grave. Maybe that guy wasn't really dead, but for someone to walk out of their own grave, after they watched him be executed on a cross, after they watched him buried, after they wrapped his body themselves, this left them in utter disbelief. Nothing seemed more impossible than a man coming out of his grave. That's exactly what Jesus did. I just ask you this morning, what in your life feels impossible? What barrier is in your life that feels impossible to overcome? All of it exists because of sin or because of the effects of sin. Addiction exists because of sin. Marriages fall apart because of sin. Relationships between fathers and mothers and their children, our relationships with our friends, they are fractured because of sin. Injustice exists because of sin. War exists because of sin. Cancer exists because of sin. 
even if it's to no fault of our own, even if it's nothing that we ourselves have done, even if it's nothing that we control, things that we experience like depression and anxiety and doubt and fear, all of this exists because of sin. And the best the world can do is help you cope. It's help you just kind of deal with it and, and power through from day to day. But when Jesus walked out of that grave, it wasn't just to help us cope with sin. It was to cure sin. And it was to conquer the power of sin in our lives. And if Jesus can overcome the power of sin, if Jesus can walk out of the tomb, then there's absolutely no barrier in your life that he cannot overcome. Verses six through eight go on to say, after the angel announces he is not here, but is risen, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. So the resurrection means for us today that there is no barrier that Christ cannot remove. Second, it means for us that there is no promise that Christ cannot fulfill. In verses six through eight, the angel is reminding the women of the words that Jesus had already spoken to them. In all of their trauma, in all of their grief and despair, they had forgotten what Jesus had said. If you go back just several chapters in the gospel of Luke, Luke 18, verses 31 to 34, Jesus predicts this. He says that the son of man will be, uh, will, will, everything that was prophesied about me will be delivered to the Gentiles and mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. After flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Jesus had said that this was going to happen. And listen, if Jesus can keep a promise to walk out of a grave, then he can keep any promise that he has made. You know, there's nothing worse for us to experience than, than the pain of a loved one who has made a promise to us that they were unable to keep. There's few things that are more difficult for us to process as human beings. Because earlier this year, uh, we had been, uh, been promising our boys that we were going to take them to the zoo for a day. Our boys love to go to the zoo. And Nolan, our middle in particular, he loves snakes. He loves alligators. He really loves reptiles. And so we've been building this up for a couple of weeks. And Nolan was talking nonstop day in and day out about our trip to the zoo. Well, when the week of the zoo trip finally came, we just kind of had the perfect storm of chaos in our lives. Uh, I had been traveling that week. I was gone while I was out of town. Emily's van broke down. And so I'm trying to kind of quarterback that from a distance. And then we had a run of sickness pass through our house. And as it got towards the end of the week, we, we just came to the conclusion. We were talking the day before we were going to go. We were like, this is just not the week for the zoo. There's just too much going on this week. We're not going to be able to do this. So of course, Emily, of course, I'm out of town. So, so mama's got to handle this. So sorry, babe. And, um, you know, just that this is what she's got to encounter. She's got to now break this news to our boys. And so, of course, you know, Nolan, he, he gets all teary. And he's very bummed because he's been, he's been, you know, propping this up all week long and excited. And you said we were going to go to the zoo. He's just heartbroken, right? He's heartbroken. Of course, we feel terrible. Well, now we got to make it up. We're like, buddy, in a few weeks, we're going to go to the zoo. And when we go to the zoo, you can look at the snakes as much as you want, the reptiles. And so fast forward, we did in fact get them to the zoo. But, but of course, y'all, the day we get to the zoo, the reptile center's closed. Like, for the love, like we just cannot get a win here. And, and so now we got to break that news to him again. And, and so he, he coped with it pretty well. But of course, we get in the truck after our trip to the zoo, look at each other like, we're not promising anything to our kids ever again, right? Like we got to change our parenting, under promise, over deliver. Next time they're like, what are we doing Friday? We'll be like, nothing. We're doing nothing. And, and then if something happens that way, they'll be surprised and we don't have to worry about breaking our promise. You know, we have to be careful, right? We have to be careful how much we promise just in case we can't make good on that promise. But I want you to think about this for a moment. God never has to be careful about what he promises. God never has to be afraid that he might not be able to deliver on what he has said he will do. He has never made a promise wondering, am I going to be able to keep this? 
Am I somehow going to let my children down? Am I somehow going to let my people down? God never has to worry about under-promising and then attempting to over-deliver. And in this instance, the, the, the promise that Jesus would come back to, from the grave, that this is the greatest promise anyone could make. And if he can keep this promise, he can keep any other promise. And listen to some of the promises that Jesus makes. Jesus promises, Matthew eleven twenty eight 28, that if you come to him because you're weary and you're heavy laden, he'll give you rest. He promises in John three sixteen that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. He promises in John chapter six that all who the father has given will come to him. And if you come to him, he will never cast you out. He promises in John chapter 14 to prepare a place for us and to come back and take us to be with him so we can be where he is. The last promise he makes in all of scripture, Revelation 22, he promised, surely I am coming soon. If Jesus can keep the promise to overcome the grave, he can keep his promise to hold on to you. If he can keep a promise to walk out of the tomb, he, has, can, he can keep every single promise he has made to us. The resurrection means that there is no promise too difficult for Christ to fulfill. Verses nine through 11 go on to tell us that returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. So what does the resurrection mean? For us, it means there is no barrier that Christ cannot remove. Second, it means there is no promise that Christ cannot fulfill. And third, it means for us that there is no doubt that Christ cannot relieve. The women come to the disciples telling them their story. The tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. And, and the disciples struggle to believe, not just because it's a story of a man who has come back from the grave. You need to understand the first century context in which this was written. You know, this, is, this very much challenges all of what we understand today to be right and to be good and to be true. But, but in the first century context, the, the testimony of women, we need to understand, was not considered credible. Women were not considered credible sources. Women in the first century were not even allowed to give testimony in the court of law. They were considered to be unreliable. This was a male-dominated culture. They were considered unreliable. They were considered to be uh, deceptive. They weren't considered to be trustworthy. And so the women, their story is dismissed, not just because it's a story about a man walking out of a grave. It's dismissed because they were women. I mean, it was a disrespect to them. And, and this is the, the, the context in which this story is being told. Now, why is that important for us? Because this is important because, you know, you, you might be sitting there saying, well, well, how do we know the, these disciples, these followers of Jesus, how do we know they didn't just make this up? How, how do we know they weren't just fabricating this whole story just because they were embarrassed of their actions a couple of days before? And, and this is one of the reasons why believe, we believe that this story is authentic. Because in the first century context, if you were trying to sell a story for people to believe, you never would have included the testimony of women. We need to see this. The disciples were not concerned about whether or not we found the story acceptable. They wanted the story to be authentic. The only reason to include the, the detail that it was from the testimony of women is because they wanted to tell the story exactly how it happened. If you wanted to sell a story of a man walking out of a grave, you would have done the opposite of what the disciples did. They did this because they know what they saw. They did this because they know that Jesus walked out of his grave. And so listen, if you find yourself in that place this morning, struggling to believe, this is what I love about the honesty of the Bible. It's not afraid to tell us these people did not accept this out of blind faith. I know that tends to be a caricature of Christianity. Like, we, like we've not actually, you think none of us have actually considered if this is true or not? Like, like ask any person in this room, of course we've wrestled with doubt. 
Of course we've wrestled with, 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 with the struggle with this. None of us have just accepted this blindly. But, but the good news is, man, if you're in that place of struggle, in that place of doubt, struggling to believe that a man really could walk out of his grave, listen, you're, you're in the same company as the closest followers of Jesus. Scripture's not afraid to tell us that the women struggled to believe. It's not afraid to tell us that the disciples struggled to believe. This is the promise of the empty tomb. The promise of the empty tomb is that you can come to Jesus before you have it all figured out. That you can come to Jesus no matter how big of a struggle, no matter how deep your doubt, you can come to him and he will meet you in your place of doubt. He will meet you in your questions. He will meet you in your struggle because the empty tomb means there is no doubt too big for Christ to relieve. Scripture admits this about the resurrection. It says, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. Have you thought about this? If, if Jesus did not walk out of the tomb, then what on earth are you doing here today? Why aren't you at the heritage? Like, like why, why be here today? Like, this, this is a complete waste of time. And, and that passage goes on to say, we as Christians, we are to be most pitied. If Jesus did not walk out of the grave, I love what Tim Keller has to say about this passage. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. If you find yourself in a place of doubt, if you find yourself in a place of questioning, if you find yourself in a place of struggle, you can know that Jesus will meet you in that place. And there's no doubt, there's no question it's too big for him to relieve. Verse 12 closes this passage by telling us that Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what happened. So what does the resurrection mean for us? It means there is no barrier that Christ cannot remove. It means there is no promise that Christ cannot fulfill. It means there is no doubt that Christ cannot relieve. And last, it means there is no grave that Christ cannot defeat. If he overcame his grave, he can overcome yours. Not just overcome the grave, to overcome even our fear of death itself. Because we know that it has no power over those who are in Jesus Christ. This is the testimony and the story of, of Peter. That you, you ask, what was the impact of the resurrection on the life of Peter? Now remember, this is the same Peter who just a couple days before denied even knowing who Jesus was. He saw Jesus arrested and he fled in spite of promising not long before this that he would have followed Jesus to his death. Here was his opportunity to do this and yet in that moment of opportunity, he flees. Now again, just, just consider all of this. For all of these disciples of Jesus, all they had to do at this point in time was go into hiding and their lives would have been spared. That's all they had to do. All they had to do was be quiet. Jesus was dead. That's the end. Let's just bring this thing to a close. All they had to do was be quiet. But why is it that history shows us 10 of 11 of these disciples went on to become martyrs? Why is it that Peter himself went on to be crucified upside down for proclaiming a resurrected Christ? Why is it that Christians all through the reign of Nero were willing to be fed to wild beasts, were willing to be dipped in tar and burned slowly to death as candles in Nero's garden? Why did they do this? Because we know from, from first century history that there were other Jewish religious leaders who rose up claiming to be a Messiah. And we know that when their lives ended, the movement ended. Why did the Christians persevere? It continues to baffle the minds of historians today. The growth of the church in the first century. Why did it happen? Because they saw a man walk out of a grave. 
They saw a Christ who had overcome the power of death itself. And so they themselves were not afraid to face death. And that is the testimony of the church through the centuries. You know, every time I hear this, I can't help but giggle a little bit. But we hear this so much in modern era that the church is on the wrong side of history. (laughs) The church has been on the wrong side of history for 2,000 years. Jesus has promised he will build his church and even the gates of hell will not overcome it. And no matter how hard this world has tried for two millennia, the more they try to persecute the church, the more it grows. That is the testimony of a people who understand that there is a greater power than death and that death does not get the final say. You know, as we gather in here this morning, um, against all odds, followers of Jesus Christ across the world in Ukraine, they're going to gather together and they're going to worship the risen Jesus. So many have stayed in spite of the war over the last couple of months, and they have chosen that the message of Jesus is more precious than life itself. And they have resolved to fearlessly stand in the face of death and proclaim and shine the light of the gospel in the darkness and chaos of war. I shared this with our congregation a few weeks ago because I want to share a snippet of this again this morning. This was the testimony of an anonymous Ukrainian church planner that was recorded in the Gospel Coalition's website when all of this started. Why stay? Why why face death? Why, Why be willing to go to the grave, die a martyr's death for the message of Jesus Christ? This was his testimony. He said, we serve a king who stared death in the face and defeated it, exploding it from the inside. There is only one true king and the little tyrants of the world will only play into his great victory. His promises are sure, his victory inevitable. You ask today, what does it mean to believe in the resurrection? That's what it means. What does it mean to understand its implications for today? That's what it looks like. It's, it's to understand that in the life of the believer in Jesus Christ, death does not get the final say. Christianity is the only true story where the introduction is death and the conclusion is life. And all of that is possible because of the empty tomb. In John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus says of himself, I am the resurrection and the life. The resurrection is not just something Jesus does. The resurrection is who Jesus is. It's who he has been for us and it's who he invites us to today. And the promise of the resurrection is that if Jesus can walk out of his own grave, then he can call you and I out of ours. That's what the resurrection means for us today. So you bow your heads with me as we begin to close our time. In just a moment, we're gonna come uh, to the table for communion. And we come to the communion table to remember the death and resurrection of Jesus and also to proclaim it until he returns. What we remember at the table is that Christ has done it for us. His body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. He did this paying the price for our sins. Matt said this earlier, Jesus did not have to do this for us. God was not required to do this for us. He's done this out of love for us, that we who ran from him could be drawn back to him. He has made it possible for us to be saved. And that is the invitation for you today is that if you are not a follower of Christ, death does not have to have the final say in your life. There's no circumstance in your life that's too difficult for Christ to overcome, including death itself and the power of your sin. And the invitation for you today is to call on the name of Jesus and be saved. 
to believe that there's nothing that you can do to save yourself, to believe fully in what Christ has done for you so that you can be saved. That's the invitation for you today. And for those of us who are followers of Christ is to remember what he's done for us. That we would not continue walking dominated by the power of sin in our lives, but empowered by the same power that rose Jesus from the grave. And that's his call in our lives today. So Father, we come today thanking you for what your son Jesus has accomplished for us. We come to remember his death. We come to proclaim his life. And we come to rejoice in what he's accomplished for us. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the empty tomb. We thank you for Jesus. This is all for him and it's all for his glory. We ask all these things in his name and everyone said, amen.